Hey, Hannah. Hey, Dante. So today we have a very special episode. I'm Living Proof Live. Yeah. During our Leadership Summit Conference this year, we were joined by Olivia, Johnny, Lauren, and Maddie to talk to them more about what their experience was like recording their podcast and sharing their letter with us. And you should recognize those names because they were guests in previous episodes. And if you haven't listened to those, you should definitely go back and do so. We had a great discussion about telling loved ones about mental health, gender roles, expectations versus reality, and how each guest felt about recording and listening to their episodes. Yeah, definitely a wealth of knowledge and insight with this group. So without further ado, should we dive into the app? Yes, but before we do, Remember to rate and subscribe. And if you're interested in submitting your own letter to the series, you can do so over at dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof. Enjoy the episode. Hi, thank you all so much for being here for I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self, our uh, leadership summit session and live podcast recording. Um, Again, thank you all so much for joining us today. My name is Hannah Zeller and I am the programs manager at DBSA and I have the unique privilege of working on uh, the I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self blog and podcast series. And I'm Dante Freeman, the Digital Communications Manager at DBSA and the host of the I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self podcast. Today, we're joined by Olivia, Lauren, Johnny, and Maddie, who all have shared their stories with us and um, recorded a conversation about their mental health journey. Yeah, so today we're going to talk to all of them and have a panel discussion about what their experiences were like and find out a little bit more about why they decided to share their stories by writing a letter to their younger self. So feel free to ask questions. As I mentioned, again, we're using the Q&A function and we'll try to get to as many audience questions as we can by the end. Yeah, so let's start by introducing our panelists. And as we say hi to all of you, we have a starter question to get us going. Um, And that is, what was the experience of listening to the podcast like for you? So I'll start us off. My name is Olivia. I'm located just outside Louisville, Kentucky. And my podcast was titled Wellness is Trending Upwards. And to me, that just means that, you know, you'll have setbacks along the way, but overall, you're going to see great progress. As far as listening back, It was a really powerful experience and really reflective. Um, We'll go into this in more detail later, but I felt a lot of isolation when I was in middle school and high school, even college. And so I think that if I had been able to hear this back then, a story like this, it would have made such a huge impact on me. Um, And so I really hope through this podcast, you know, parents or young ones can, can learn something from it. Thanks so much, Olivia. Yeah. And Lauren, you want to, want to, Tell us about your episode. Yeah, definitely. So hi, everyone. I'm Lauren. Um, My uh, episode was titled Bipolar Does Not Define Me. And I chose that title because um, as much as that experience or those symptoms were all encompassing to me back at that time, um, eight years later, I really do feel like I'm so much more than my diagnosis. So listening back to that episode for me, you know, I was at first nervous um, at, you know, how I might come across, but it really did make me take a step back and appreciate what a journey it's been for me and what it took to get here. Um, Similar to Olivia, you know, I felt like it was therapeutic and I thought a good exercise and being kind and gentle to myself, definitely a practice I'm still working on. So yeah, it just really makes me grateful to be here. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. And Johnny, you're, you're up next. Yes. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Johnny, like Hannah said, and the title of my episode was I'm Living Proof Young Men Can Heal Too. And the reason why I went with that title um, was because in particular, as it relates to my experience as a young man and as once a young boy, um, mental health wasn't something that was really talked about. Um, certainly um, not 
in my family and not amongst um, my network of guy friends. Um, so I really wanted to hone in on that aspect of my story because I think it's incredibly important. And in terms of what it was like listening to my episode for the first time, um, I'm essentially going to echo both Olivia and Lauren's comments here. Um, it was um, a little nerve wracking at first, um, hearing yourself recorded, speaking, it, it's fodder for a lot of anxiety. But once I got past that, uh, it was incredibly therapeutic. Hearing yourself speak from a place of strength, especially as someone who has struggled with mental health is, is a big deal. Um, and kind of like Lauren mentioned, it's, it's, uh, always a constant work in progress. And so building in milestones for yourselves, um, to speak from a place of empowerment, I think is incredibly important. So I'm grateful to DBSA for providing me that opportunity, um, and look forward to, you know, having opportunities, uh, in, in the years ahead to, to do that. So, uh, thank you again, Hannah, and look forward to our conversation today. Yeah, thanks so much, Johnny. Appreciate it. And Maddie, do you want to round us out? What was it like for you? Yeah, um, so my name is Maddie. Um, I currently live and work in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and the name of my episode was Navigating Through the Darkness. Um, I named it that because throughout my episode, I really talked a lot about how to cope with a mental health disorder rather than like healing from one or getting to the other side, um, because that just isn't the reality of, of a diagnosis. Um, and it's like the saying goes, and like um, my co-hosts have said before me, um, healing isn't linear. Um, so that's really what my, my episode dealt with. Um, and listening back to the recording of my episode was really odd. Like everyone has said, it was it's weird to hear your own voice. Um, but in a way, gave me a lot of perspective on how far I really have come since the days of my early diagnosis. Um, and it was nice to, to physically hear myself explain my progress throughout the years. So yeah, I thank you to DBSA as well for giving me that opportunity. Thank you, Maddie, for sharing. One of the privileges that Hannah and I have um, when we're doing this podcast is that we get to talk about and debrief about all of the podcasts together. And one of the things that we noticed, uh, a theme that we pulled out in most of the letters was that there was a period of silent suffering or isolation um, across the letters and a period where um, the people who were writing the letters were dealing with symptoms on their own, but they hadn't yet disclosed it to anyone. Um, Maddie, I know in your podcast episode, you talked about the period of time where you didn't disclose to anyone and that you actually submitted your own name uh, anonymously to receive help at school. I know a lot of people are probably dealing with problems that come with isolation right now. So can you talk about that a little more, what that experience was like? Um, and then when did you go ask for help and what finally tipped the scales? Thanks, Dante. Um, yeah, so I, like you said, I, I truly was isolating myself and, and suffering in silence a lot throughout high school. Um, I was dealing with weekly, sometimes daily panic attacks at the time, um, especially during school hours and because of my social anxiety. Um, I did everything in my power to hide it and internalize it. Um, yeah, really the only indicator that I was even having panic attacks or issues at the time, um, even now would be like sweat pouring down my face and my body, which um, I think is just tells a lot to people who, you know, might be looking for these signs and symptoms in, you know, younger people in school or they work with youth or teenagers um, because a lot of times it is, um, an internalized struggle, and there is a lot of suffering and silence that goes on. Um, later on in high school, for me, is when my depression got really bad, um, and I was still trying to operate as if everything was fine. Um, and it was maybe a fear of seeking help because I didn't want to attach a diagnosis to what I was going through, or even that I was just denying how I felt to myself. Um, but uh, I was definitely isolating and internalizing my suffering so that it wouldn't be a burden onto anyone else. That's kind of how I thought about it. I thought, you know, I was being strong by handling my emotions independently. 
when in reality, um, that was the easy part. And the hard part was actually reaching out and asking for help. Um, and, and like you said, and we talked about in my podcast episode, I, I ended up submitting my name to our counseling office's student assistance program. So it's like you can anonymously submit a name um, and the school psychiatrist will call you in. Um, and it really, I just got to that to that point because um, I had really struggled in silence for so long with my depression that um, I, I didn't feel like I could verbally ask somebody for help that like just because of my social anxiety and stigma surrounding it um so that was really the way for me to say yeah i need help was just passively sticking my name in a box um and being able to to get help um and it was a really enlightening experience to feel that relief after reaching out for help um, and having the school psychiatrist to talk to and get a diagnosis after that. Um, and I wish I had done it sooner, sooner um, to save years in high school of silent suffering. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that for anybody else going through the same kind of isolation right now that um, the sooner you reach out, the better it's gonna be in the long run. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Maddie. And um, I love that you were able to get to the point where you could self-advocate for yourself, submit your own name. Um, but I know that, that that not wanting to be a burden to others is definitely a theme that we've heard. And Olivia, you know, I know in your letter, there was also a theme of suffering in silence. Um, and you talk a little bit about isolation in your letter as well. And this was, you know, you're at, in the middle school age at this point, and we know time feels real long when you're a middle schooler. So I just wonder, uh, like reflecting back on that experience, you know, and thinking about how prevalent isolation is, especially now, like, how, how do you think back on that experience? And what would yeah. you tell others? So I think before there was even the isolation, there was a sense of shame, um, you know, my family growing up, I, like you said, I was in middle school. Um, financially, we were fine. You know, interpersonal relationships, we were fine. Um, and so I almost felt like, well, I don't I don't really have anything to complain about. Why do I feel this way? You know, why am I depressed and anxious now? You know, now that I'm older and I've been involved with groups like this, I know that nobody gets in line for mental illness. It's just like any other condition, you know, diabetes, a broken arm. Nobody signs up for it, um, but you have it and you have to deal with it. Um, so for a while, I did try to isolate and, you know, I didn't want to be a burden on my family members or friends. Um, and I thought, you know, for certain people, maybe if I even do, you know, say that I'm feeling this way, they won't get it or they won't care. Um, and so I did keep it to myself for as long as I could. But that was, you know, looking back, it was such a huge misconception for me. Um, through going through support groups with DBSA and other organizations, I've learned that isolation, you know, it feels very real, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, anytime that I've been in a support group and somebody shared an experience, there's been at least one other person that said, hey, yeah, I went through something really similar. Here's how I dealt with that. Um, and so I, I wish I could go back. You know, you can't, but, and just tell my younger self, you know, you feel alone, but you're really not. Yeah, and that also brings up this theme of our expectations being different than reality, right? Um, and it's a, a theme that is prevalent through most of your experiences. And I know um, for you, Lauren, um, in your experience, when you first start experiencing symptoms of bipolar, you felt a different kind of energy, um, and you perceive this at a time as like it's a new version of yourself. Um, then you get the diagnosis of bipolar. How did you feel about the diagnosis at the time, and did that change your experience of the newfound emotion, this new version of Lauren? Yeah, that's a great question, Dante. I would say that getting that diagnosis at the time was disappointing to say the least. You know, I was on the cusp of graduating college. You know, I thought I was coming out of my shell, like you said, becoming this new and better version of myself. Um, like I was going to be striking out, you know, in the real world as, you know, this renewed version. And so 
you know, to give further context, like I really was a much re more reserved person um, back in college, throughout high school, middle school, I really did not speak up for myself or express myself really too much. So to start finding my voice and to become more outspoken as I did during the hypomania, it really was uh, invigorating. It was refreshing to me at least, but, um, and I know that getting a diagnosis for others, you know, can be affirming and validating of their experiences, which it was in part for me at the time, like it gave a name to the experiences, but also it brought me crashing down, like really was a reality check for me, um, especially as, you know, it got put into perspective for me of, you know, this outspokenness uh, really does have, like it, it was like a double-edged sword of like the irritability really came through in my symptoms as well. And I really lashed out at people and was verbally aggressive, which was so far and away, you know, different from how I usually was. So it certainly shifted my mindset around the symptoms in terms of, you know, uh, thinking, okay, you know, yes, maybe in part, this is a, a growth development. Um, you know, I'm still developing my personality and whatnot, but these other aspects, such as the irritability and verbal aggressiveness, you know, weren't actually part of me. So that had to um, be put into perspective. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing uh, that with us. You know, I think the time period of transitioning to college, like you said, you know, uh, striking out to the world, real worlds can definitely be a time where our expectations do not meet the reality. And Johnny, question for you, um, you know, a part of your letter that really resonated with me is when you talk about going to college and, you know, you're not feeling your best, but as you phrase it, everyone around you is in the prime of their lives. And so I guess at the time, you know, how, how did you think about that? And I guess, when did it become more salient for you that this notion of everyone being in the prime of their lives is, is a little bit um, maybe something that we perceive in the others around us, but might not fully be the case? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for that question, Hannah. Um, and I think part of your question kind of uh, illuminates the the problem I was having at that time. And it's, you know, what were you thinking? And the challenge was I really wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about what was happening to me or how I was relating to the world um, because mental health, like I said in my introduction, just wasn't really part and parcel um, to my upbringing. Um, and and uh, my upbringing writ large, um, I grew up in a very uh, progressive community and mental health still wasn't, you know, it wasn't instilled in us at, at a very young age. And so by the time I got to college, um, in terms of just having that, uh, that ability to self-reflect and to intellectualize what was going on, I didn't have those tools. So in terms of feeling, you know, different from other people, uh, that certainly was happening at a very intuitive level, but it wasn't something that I was allowing myself to really process. And what happens when you're kind of running on autopilot and you're not really making sense of the trauma that you're feeling at the time, you're liable to displacing that trauma. And so there was a lot of acting out, right? There was, there was a lot of displacement onto others. It impacted the way I was relating to alcohol. It impacted the way that I was relating to women. It impacted the way that I was relating to all of my relationships. And I think looking back, having stepped through, spending years going through a therapeutic environment, you know, what was happening is I was displacing trauma. And so that us or that me versus the world had a profound effect on me, even though I wasn't, you know, really making sense or identifying that there was an issue at the time. And then when it became really salient for me, was when I had a full-blown mental health crisis. And that was kind of, my, my hand was forced. And so, you know, I, I had um, an incident right after I graduated college, the unexpected uh, ending of, of a relationship, of a romantic relationship that spanned years. And I was in a really, really dark place. And I had to go see a therapist. I had to go see a, a psychiatrist. And it was in doing that work and investing in that work that I began to make sense of what was happening to me. And then also, and, and Olivia spoke to this as well, is as you 
open up and you start to give voice to these experiences, you start meeting people who raise their hand and say, hey, I've been experiencing something like this too. And for me as, as, as a young man, what was particularly powerful for me was once I started to open up, I had you know other men in my life reach out and say, Johnny, I've been experiencing this too. I have felt the feelings that you have felt about feeling like I wasn't, you know, manly or desirable or in my prime. I I felt that, or I felt that since I was like 12 years old. And in that you find um, a lot of solidarity and you realize you're not alone. And the perceptions that I was feeling at the time when I was in college, it, it, it wasn't even true. And so it was a long journey, um, but I can't speak enough about the power of, of stepping into a therapeutic environment and beginning to intellectualize and make sense of, of the experiences that you're having. Very well said. Yeah, I think, you know, all of you are kind of a testament to the good processing that you've all done, you know, in your own experiences and your own therapeutic work to be able to look at this stuff in the rearview mirror and, and be able to take a different perspective on it. You know, another theme that I think we saw a lot in in the letters was, you know, how the experience of your gender or the experience of your race, you know, impacted your own individual stories. You know, for Johnny, you give us a lot of great examples about, you know, kind of the gendered expectations to be more masculine, to not be open about your feelings. And, you know, there's so many ways in which society tells men to be non-emotional, um, but I also know, you know, for the women in, in the group, we also know society has a way of telling women that they're being too emotional. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think Dante, you have a question uh, for Lauren around this. Yeah, Lauren, in, in your letter, you shared that um, there are definitely some ways in which your family and the people close to you did not have a strong understanding of what you were going through um, at the time um, in regards to your mental health. What role do you think, um, maybe culturally or even with gender um, stereotypes, played into how your family and loved ones uh, re responded and reacted to you at that time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be fair, I'll first say that, you know, I didn't really let my family in too much on what was going on with me. I mean, first, I didn't even have the language or you know, greater understanding that I have now of my condition and to be able to articulate and express um, and explain, you know, really what was going on with me at the time. You know, I think, um, you know, uh, that needs to be said first, but it did show up in my relationships with my dad and with my boyfriend at the time, especially. Um, I think the added layer of me being Asian American too, I think I was expected um, to be, you know, quiet, submissive, um, certainly not talking back to my dad or uh, my boyfriend and much less raging at them, right? So, you know, I think I had grown up and, you know, had been viewed as like this pleasant, nice, you know, well-to-do uh, person. But um, so of course, you know, for them, it was jarring for me to suddenly be coming out and become challenging. And like I said, verbally aggressive even. So just like kind of a 180 almost even. And so, um, you know, I think the bipolar symptoms really heightened all of that. And then I think to the gender piece that you're speaking to, I think as a cisgender woman too, I think there is that emotionality piece of, you know, being um, looked down on if we do express our emotions um, really at all, or just like in such a strong way, like Hannah, you touched on it of, you know, we're viewed as hysterical, like that has historic, you know, meaning behind that term as well of, you know, women being in, in hysterics. So I think the combination of those identities for me, like, again, being Asian American and as a cisgender woman, I think, um, you know, those certainly played into the lack of understanding and the uh, surprise reactions that those close to me did. But at the same time, too, I think, um, you know, I wasn't like that for throughout the time that they know, knew me, like it was all very new and um, I would say disorienting for them, too. So, yeah, that that came with the disorder, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's so hard when we're, you know, we're being judged by maybe symptoms that are presented, but there's also kind of this cultural layer 
um, of, of how our gender, you know, informs our experience in the world. Um, and handing a question to Johnny now, you know, Johnny, you speak so eloquently, you know, again, what you could express or not express because of gendered um, expectations. And this is kind of a big uh, question, but, you know, now that you reflect back, how do you think that we should be raising our young boys so that they don't run into what you ran into when you needed help and felt kind of helpless asking? Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, I, I think there's a couple of things, Hannah, and some of this I've, I've alluded to in my previous answers. Um, but one, you know, like I was talking about earlier, is it wasn't a part of you know, the culture and the community that I grew up in and the family that I grew up in to talk about mental health. Um, and, and even going, you know, a little more simpler than that is just talking about emotions in general. So this concept, this idea of emotional literacy. So when we, when we start, you know, preschool, you know, it, it is imperative at that young age that we're being taught how to read, right? And we understand that there's, you know, a, a critical window between three and five years old where we need to instill, you know, the tools that children can use to read so that they have a, a reading literacy for the rest of their lives. And I think there's a huge opportunity to do that with emotional literacy so that we're starting as young as possible to instill kids, not just, not just boys, but human beings across the board with the tools that they need to make sense of the emotions that they're feeling. Um, like I said, in my previous answer, you know, when you asked me, what was I thinking at 18, 19 years old when I was at college? And my response was, I wasn't. And so why am I emotionally illiterate or have signs of emotional illiteracism when I'm 18, 19 years old? Some of those things should have been taught to me well before I got to that point. And then the second thing is just this, this notion of, of how we are socializing our boys to relate to one another. Um, part of my story, because my mental health was connected to a diagnosis of a, a chronic ailment when I was 15 years old that had a whole host of physical symptoms is I struggled uh, profoundly with body image. And there was actually a period of time where I was on a cocktail of drugs um, that was meant to address uh, the chronic illness I had, which, which is Crohn's disease. And I had cystic acne that covered my body. And I can remember sneaking into my mom's makeup bag before school to put makeup on just because I felt ugly. I wasn't telling anybody about that, let alone my guy friends or girlfriends, anyone about that. And so there was this this profound internalization of self-rejection um, and, and, and profound challenges around body image that I just couldn't express. Um, and, and what, you know, sometimes I look back and, and think about, you know, how much it would have helped me at that time to even turn to a guy friend and say, hey, I'm struggling with my body image right now. And to this day, at 30 years old, and someone who has, you know, done a lot of work as it relates to mental health, I still feel a barrier to doing that. And I still have to <laughs> remind myself that, hey, you have a support network of, of guys, girls, human beings, um, and, and to rely on them. So I think those two components of emotional literacy and, and really being intentional about how we're socializing our young men to relate to the world um, could make a really, really big difference um, and improvement in the lives of, of um, of young men um, and and their friends and family. Thank you, Johnny. And you you point out something that's apparent in every um, letter that we've uh, that has been shared with us is that you know our, none of this well none of the wellness journeys are in a straight line. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important that we know that a lot of times, though, on these wellness journeys. Um, when we're talking about who we first disclose to or who finds out first um, is usually someone very close to you, usually a friend or family member. Um, as a theme that's apparent in a lot of the letters, Olivia, I know that when you first disclosed to a friend, he was actually the one who went um, to an adult for help. Have you thought about if he didn't intervene at that time and what things might have been like for you. And now as someone who is a huge supporter and advocate for others, um, 
in the mental health space, do you think that there is something we could be teaching kids about asking for help, especially when they're doing it on behalf of someone else? Yeah, so that was another huge part of writing this letter for me was reflecting back on what a big impact that friend made on me, you know, probably without really thinking much about it. You know, I'm sure he he went through a lot emotionally to end up going to a school counselor, but I don't think either of us would have imagined that the impact it would have on my wellness journey and that I'd be here speaking on a panel today for DBSA. Um, when he first told the counselor, I was very upset. Um, you know, I was in eighth grade and I had thought, you know, I told my best friend the secret and he promised he wasn't going to tell and yada, yada. Um, and so we didn't talk for two years. Um, we ended up going to the same high school. We had a lot of the same friends, but we just didn't talk because I felt like, you know, my trust had been betrayed. Uh, thankfully, I matured a little bit and I realized that it was incredibly helpful what he did. And it's what, you know, when I have children, it's what I would want them to do. It's what I want my nephews to do to recognize that, you know, physical safety along with mental health is number one. You know, middle school drama and who's friends with who, it, it doesn't matter if somebody's your friend if they're not there. Um, you know, and that was a point that I was going to get to if I didn't get help. Um, so when I was writing this letter and when I ended up listening back to my podcast, I thought about that friend again. Um, you know, we had kind of had a, you know, a truce in 11th and 12th grade. But after I listened to the podcast back, I reached back out to him and I said, Hey, you know, I, I just wanted to let you know, I'm thinking about you checking in on how, you know, your master's degree is going and really, really thank you for what you did in eighth grade. I know I was mean about it at the time, but it was a huge help to me. Um, so as far as advice for, you know, parents on how to prepare kids for that, or even younger people listening, I think it's really honest, really important to be honest. Um, kids aren't, they might not know of things, but they're not dumb. They're not stupid. Um, you have to give them realistic expectations for what might happen. You know, and in my case, that was, you know, I did lose a close friend for a couple of years, but in the long run, me looking back and, you know, since I've spoken to him, him looking back, we both realized that was the safe, healthy, right decision to make. I'm so glad that you were able to to connect with him recently and that this, this experience brought that for you and 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 glad that that you can reflect back on that now um, um in that positive way. Um Maddie, I know for you, you know, what was interesting in your letter is that you know your mom is a guidance counselor, but it took you a while uh, you know, to open up and disclose you submitted your own name. So I wonder, you know, what, what that re reaction was like from mom when you finally did open up to her. And then I also wonder, you know, like with your mom being a mental health professional, did you have kind of a concept of like, oh, I'm not unwell enough to need the kind of services or, or what my mom provides? I think sometimes we can like undervalue what, what we're experiencing. So I was just wondering if that was part of your experience at all. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. Um, so when when I finally did open up to mom, my mom, it was um, through the program in the in the counseling office that I ended up giving my name to, um, and she was very supportive and helpful in finding me um, and setting up resources after the fact after I had spoken to the school psychiatrist, and I'm very thankful for that because um, I don't know if I would have been able to do that myself as a young person. Um, and she's she's the one who, in the first place, had reminded me that that resource was there at my school um, if I wasn't ready to open up to her um, as a mental health professional because she was my parent. Um, and I think in, in some way she also felt um, probably some level of internal guilt at the, that she hadn't picked up on how bad things really were at the time. Um, she obviously knew something was going on, but um, I didn't allow her to catch on to the extent of how bad it was. Um, and I definitely, I like you said, downplayed my symptoms um, because, and this is similar to what Olivia was talking about, I didn't feel like um, there was a reason for me to be feeling this way. 
Um, I had a good family and a home life and friends. I was doing pretty well in school. Um, so I definitely had a lot of guilt within myself as well for feeling so awful um, for so long without any pinpointed reason. But um, like Olivia was saying too, mental health issues don't discriminate, you know, they just, it happens to anybody. Um, and I think growing up around someone who works in within the mental health profession, um, you know, I, I heard a lot of the crisis stories. So, you know, things my mom and my family are talking about were kids really hurting themselves or others, which were reason for emergency interventions, you know, and because that didn't align with my experience, because I was, you know, self-isolating and internalizing a lot of my symptoms, um, I think I had this warped sense of what depression can look like and how different it can actually be from individual to individual. Um, so, yeah, it didn't take long um, after opening up for me to feel that sense of relief um, and get that understanding from speaking to my mom, um, getting her perspective on things as well as therapy to realize, okay, you know, this was the right thing to do. I was, I, although I was downplaying my symptoms, it definitely um, was a real and valid issue that I was dealing with. And I'm glad that I reached out and got that diagnosis in the end. Yeah, always good when we're able to get to the point of advocating for ourselves. Um, and want to move us to another question that's definitely related to self-advocacy. Um, you know, I think the the last area we wanted to focus on, the, the theme that came out in some of the letters was, you know, at the systemic level, there are systemic level issues in the mental health space that can be a barrier to care. You know, in, in Johnny's letter, you, you write about being diagnosed with a chronic illness and there are not doctors who are, are flagging that and saying, okay, hey, maybe this kid would benefit from also some mental health counseling. Um, Lauren, I know in your experience, you know, you had a hard time with um, moving and insurance and the cost of medication and, you know, being able to, to, to get your own care at an affordable price. So I just want to ask every panelist this question, um, you know, just in terms of the systemic level uh, mental health space, what were barriers that you ran into and what do you hope to be different for future generations? Um, Lauren, can we start with you on that one? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think um, this was touched on by everyone. And I think especially that emotional literacy piece that uh, Johnny spoke to earlier is, you know, really the lack of information that I had at the time, you know, from, throughout growing up and throughout college, you know, I really didn't have the understanding and language with which to, um, you know, express, articulate my experiences and much less understand them. And so I think, you know, we're, it's commonly said that we're not taught life skills in school, like how to manage our finances, um, things, uh, you know, like that, but I, and I do hear, you know, about social emotional learning curricula that is being implemented. So those are good first steps, but I did not know how to navigate my health insurance plan, how to use that to access services after college, how it works with getting medications. Um, it really was all such a, you know, big mess of confusion for me and just made the process all that more frustrating. So I would say the more education, the better, especially in communities where mental health is still stigmatized, like in the AAPI community. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Johnny, you want to go ahead on this one, too? Yeah, for sure. So like you mentioned, Hannah, um, when I was first diagnosed, there just was a lack of, of infrastructure and screening that could have gone a long way in changing the trajectory and the path that I ended up going down. And so one you know, in terms of the healthcare system, you know, there just needs to be, I think, and in my opinion, a much more holistic approach. So that when a kid like myself is diagnosed with a chronic illness, like you said, Hannah, it's immediately being flagged that this is not just going to be a physical battle, that there's going to be a mental battle that's associated with that. And so, you know, my early on experience was, okay, this kid has an illness, he has a disease, it has to do with his digestive system, 
and everything was myopically focused on that. And uh, mental health didn't even play second fiddle to that. It, it, it didn't fiddle at all <laughs> until there was a crisis. And so that was a major, major problem. And even though we have made great strides, I think, as a country, as a world, in talking about mental health and, and getting past kind of that first wave, that first barrier of stigma, um, I still, to this day, um, continue to run into b- barriers with accessing treatment. And that's someone um, who's gainfully employed. Um, that's someone who has a whole host of privileges, and it's still a, a, a huge challenge. And one of the things that I've learned is that healing is really expensive. It costs a lot of money to do, and it 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 shouldn't be that way if we want to optimize our health um, as as a society. So, for an example, I two years ago. Um, underwent transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, it's a brain stimulation therapy, and it costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And thankfully, I had health insurance and a little bit of help from my parents to help meet the deductible, and I was able to do that. Um, now, fast forward to this year, and it's been a really rough year, and some of my symptoms have started to pop up again. And I've you know, looked at doing that type of treatment again, And here I am looking at my budget and saying, can I afford this treatment? And it's, it's really, really hard. And again, thanks to my family, I'll be able to do that. But whether or not someone heals should not be dependent on the privileges that they have in in a society. And my experience and my capacity to heal should, that should be affordable, uh, afforded to every human being on the face of this earth. And so there's a lot of work to do on that front, and we have a long way to go um, because um, the way that mental health is treated as as almost like secondary to physical health, and we even we haven't even gotten the physical health <laughs> component right. Um, it's 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 incredibly important. Great, thanks, Maddie. Do you have anything to share about you know a systemic level issue you ran into? Yeah, um, basically, I'm just, you know, kind of along the same lines as as Lauren and Johnny. Um, I've definitely had my share of, of accessing mental health care um, treatment um, and therapy. Um, I I ended up losing my health insurance when I was 25, simply because uh, my mom retired from her job and I was no longer dependent. Um, and because I was, you know, recently out of college, I was working part-time at a nonprofit, I didn't have coverage. And um, even now as a young professional, I, I work in a field, um, the nonprofit sector, that we just don't have the funds for that. Um, and so it has been really problematic trying to um, figure out myself without any resources, like where to find the cheapest prescriptions, how to find the coupons, like even, you know, approaching my normal pharmacist, they don't have the answers to these questions. There just is not really a place to turn, um, which is, can be really infuriating because, you know, it's something that I think about as someone who is coming from this privileged perspective that, you know, if, if I can't find access to my few medications that I need for mental health care, you know, makes me think of everybody else who's dealing with the same issues. Um, and it, it's a, a real issue for therapy access as well. Um, I have been going without it for a period of time, just simply because, you know, without health care, you can't a lot of people can't pay out of pockets for like astronomical prices, like Johnny was saying. Um, And although there has been a time where, you know, public mental health access was better here in Chicago within the past few years, a lot of the um, public funded uh, mental health clinics were shut down um, to anybody who needed um, access to that. Um, So it's, yeah, it's definitely been, um, although we are going in a better direction, like Johnny said, there have been a lot of setbacks and there's um, a lot more progress that we need to make to support people living with mental health conditions. Thank you, Maddie. Um, For any 
person who has had the privilege of listening to the podcast, you know, the last question that I asked is about a wellness tip that they're willing to share with our audience. Today, I'm wondering um, if they would share something about their wellness journey uh, with us. So I'm wondering, at what point did you feel like you could control your own wellness journey? And what helped you realize that? And we'll go in episode order. So we'll start with Olivia. Yeah, so I'll try to make this quick because I know we're coming up on time. Um, For me, there was a big difference between what I thought was my wellness journey and what what it really was. And that was the difference between just managing my symptoms versus what I was internally going through. So actually feeling like I was in control. And there are still some days that I struggle with that, but it really started to turn around for me my sophomore and junior year of college. Um, I had a counselor that told me, you know, your anxious thoughts, your depressive thoughts, just imagine you're, you're at a river and they're all fish, all of your thoughts. And you can choose to pick them up and keep them and take them home. Or if you don't like them and they're not helpful, you can just let them go on by. Um, and so that was huge for me. And that's something that I still remind myself on a weekly basis. Lauren? Yeah, I had to think on that question because it really has come in uh, spurts for me. You know, the first couple of years of coming to terms with that diagnosis, trying to just learn how to manage my symptoms, you know, that was from like ages 22 to 24. And then I had a period of stability from like 24 to 27 when I wasn't moving across the country. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so with the move and transition, you know, though it has been disruptive uh, to my mental health care and I've had to find new providers and, you know, uh, reorganize my care around that. So, you know, like I would say in the past, uh, again, like two or three years, you know, now that I've been more settled, um, that's when I have felt more in control of my wellness. And, you know, I think I recognize that when I feel like I'm really thriving in my day-to-day, I'm not just trying to get by uh, in my day-to-day. So yeah, really feeling like I'm enjoying, you know, my life to the fullest. Thank you. Johnny? Yeah, I think one of the hardest lessons for me on my mental health journey was just learning that the time scale is a lot larger and a lot more formidable. And like Maddie said earlier, completely nonlinear to what my initial expectations were for how that was going to go. And also, I'm going to tie in a little bit of what Olivia said around, you know, I, there was a long period of time where I was doing a really good job at controlling the optics, controlling the perception of what people thought about me. And the reason why I was able to do that was because I was not in a period of crisis. And I was like, okay, I I know I'm feeling, you know, uh, symptoms of depression, anxiety, um, but I'm okay. I'm I'm going to classes at college. I still have friends. I'm going out. I'm in a romantic relationship. And so I could present to the world like everything was okay. And then a full-blown mental health crisis, which I thought, right, in, in my, you know, egocentrism would never happen to me. But once it happened, right, it's like, holy cow, this is incredibly hard stuff. And once I was in that really, really, really dark place, um, it, it was a battle for my life. And it took almost two years to get to a place where I was not experiencing extreme depression, um, suicidal ideation. Um, I talk in my podcast about feeling like I was uh, inflammation personified, just an extreme pain every single day. And that was a two-year battle. And so for anyone listening, I guess the lesson that I take away from that is, you know, if you're struggling today, or if you know someone who's struggling today, this can take a really long time. But hang in there. Because if you show up every single day, and you give it your best shot, things will get better. They absolutely will. And one of the things I also had to learn is there's no magic bullet. And and it it really took a holistic approach of going to therapy, seeing a psychiatrist, changing my diet, changing my daily routine, changing the media that I was consuming across the board. And it was really when I started taking that holistic approach that that needle finally started to move a little bit. And I have to continue to try and move that needle today. And we'll have to continue trying to move that needle tomorrow and for the rest of my life. 
So. And we'll finish up with Maddie. Yeah, um, very similar to what everyone has said so far, but um, it took me so long to feel like um, my wellness was something I could control. Um, For me, getting a diagnosis, I was like, okay, great. I've suffered so many years. I've got a diagnosis now. I'll just take this magic pill or do therapy for a few months and I'll be better. You know, that was my thinking Um, without having to put in like all the behind the scenes work that actually goes into it. And Truly, it's it's really taken me until 26, which is how old I am now, to get that like daily mental health routine down um, and and sticking to it. And there are days where I fall off and weeks when I fall off and and that's fine. And there are going to be setbacks. But um, just knowing that it's something that I have to come back to and I have to keep working at um, every day. You know, it doesn't feel good. Structure doesn't feel good with my brain, but um, I know that it's how my mental health operates the best. Um, so creating and sticking to that daily routine has has really helped me in my journey. Well, I want to thank all our panelists for sharing with us today. I also want to thank you for um, attending this um, with us. Again, these stories are powerful. And if you want to listen to them, um, you can go find the podcast on our website or go to dbsalliance.org slash I'm Living Proof. Yeah, thank you all panelists so much for being here. I'm always so appreciative and honored to be able to hear your stories and and share and share these great conversations with you. Um, but yeah, thank you all for coming today. Check out I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self, and make sure you, if you're on your podcast app, uh, rate and subscribe. Uh, It really helps support us. So again, thank you all for being here today. Thank you so much for listening to our live episode. We would also like to thank Olivia, Lauren, Johnny, and Maddie for joining us during the Leadership Summit. You can listen to their stories on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The I'm Living Proof, a letter to my younger self podcast is hosted by DBSA Programs Manager, Hannah Zeller, and Digital Communications Manager, Dante Freeman. Please rate and review the podcast. And if you want to hear more podcasts like this, please support DBSA today by heading over to dbsalliance.org slash donate. Thank you.